Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. There's something beguiling about the story of the Magi, something that draws us into a larger scene than the one we usually find ourselves telling gospel stories on a Sunday morning about. Perhaps it's the organ's Arabian lyricism during We Three Kings, or the fact that somehow this story doesn't seem quite to fit with the rest of the traditions we have around Jesus' birth. Only Matthew's account of Jesus' birth contains the story of the Magi in what is often described as the most Jewish of the Gospels, the arrival of three travelers from beyond Israel, especially given they are known for their wisdom, is a fact that is intriguing. Nowhere else in Matthew is there any particular interest in wisdom beyond the Judaic tradition. Indeed, with Jesus' later mimicking of Moses' instruction of Israel in the law and the Sermon on the Mount, the inclusion of wise visitors at an event as important as Jesus' birth is all the more remarkable. Also unique is the fact that while their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh each have symbolic significance, gold as a symbol of kingship, frankincense of Jesus' priesthood, and myrrh, an embalming oil, a symbol of his death. It is the only time that Jesus is presented with material gifts. In other words, for all sorts of reasons, the story of the Magi is an odd tale. Given its proclivity for the mysterious, I've always enjoyed accompanying the biblical account of the story with T.S. Eliot's poem, Journey of the Magi. In it, he imagines what it might have been like inside the mind of the travelers from the east. He writes, A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of year for a journey, and such a long journey. The way is deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters, and the cities hostile, and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty, and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we prefer to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying, this was all folly. Has the ultimate fear of those who set out on a limb to find something that is beyond their line of sight. What if it is all for naught? Perhaps you have been there yourself, stepped out into the great beyond only later to question if you had made the right call. Yet it is important that here we meet the Magi before they have encountered the Christ child. Here, Eliot imagines the doubts and struggles that enter their minds while they journey of their own volition and power. It is what he imagines happens to them next that is most 
theologically fertile. For after they come face to face with the infant Jesus, Eliot suggests that their passage home by another road was not merely an effective method of avoiding the infant's titled Herod, who is also the first steps of a new life's journey. As Eliot puts it, on their return home, they are no longer at ease in the old dispensation, no longer finding the familiar comforts of home among an alien people clutching their gods. Something changes, everything in fact. Not because of their great wisdom or the wealth suggested by their gifts, but because of the encounter with Christ. Suggestion Eliot's poem offers to the tradition of the Magi is that something of their theology, their view of God and the world, was upended by that encounter. And so we too might ask what might need upending in our own conceptions of God? I've been enjoying reading recently some research interested in how teenagers view God and religion. In an age of increasing secularization among younger Americans, in the minds of many whom sociologists interview, God is akin to some sort of cosmic therapist who responds in times of trouble but doesn't really ask for much in return. Researchers call this view, rather snappy title, Moralistic therapeutic deism. Flying off the shelves, I'm sure. Within such an understanding, churches then are seen as places that help people feel better and behave nicer, at least for the rest of Sunday. The question that must be asked, of course, is where these teenagers got their concepts of God from. How much is it the case that the church at large presents a childlike kind of faith that relegates God to the contours of our own psychodramas. The God who props open doors of opportunity when we need them most, or the God who makes sure to spare us from undue suffering, dutifully keeping watch over our everyday lives. This God is no doubt highly convenient, but thoroughly domesticated one we fashion not only in our likeness but to our liking and is largely mute and inert in the face of the turbulence of the world's troubles and suffering. This kind of domesticated God won't do anything to upend much about our lives, but neither will the God we co-opt for our own just cause. Here God is relegated to the role of eternal social justice advocate whose righteousness is not a divine attribute but is measured according to our own prevailing worldview. Religion becomes the assembly of the righteously indignant and holiness is a matter of ethical living where the right thing is achievable without any particular need for a God to get us there. They're both forms of functional atheism only bringing God off the shelf when we really need some help or really need some justification. But the trouble with these conceptions of God is that they infantilize those who 
people are called to follow the one who is active and purposeful in the world. What we need to nurture instead is the kind of faith that Bonhoeffer called a religion come of age. To come of age is to place our lives not in God's care, but believing that God's grace is decisively transforming the world at the crucible of its pain and struggle. It is to trust that the power that birthed God into the world in Jesus is also alive in us, and that this power is one we can entrust our lives to. The trouble is, Sunday mornings look so respectable. We even get dressed up especially. And most of the time, churches, especially well-oiled machines like this one, can make that central truth of the gospel hard to see, that we are indeed of God's grace if we seek a better world. God can too easily slip into the role of an ecclesiastical add-on to our already busy weeks and lives. Yet at our best, this tradition we share with Anglicans around the world can offer us a living witness to the sheer magnitude of the power of grace, a power that will upend us, that will make all things new if we commit ourselves to it. One of those witnesses was laid to rest this weekend at Cape Town Cathedral, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a man who literally laid his body upon the hope that God was indeed making all things new in his native land of South Africa. You're probably familiar with the long, hard struggle of the apartheid years, the decades of brutality and exclusion at the hands of those who were charged with government and law. During much of Desmond Tutu's ministry in the church, to gather in townships amongst black congregants was in itself an act of worship that required permission, and so often they worshiped God illegally. It was in itself an act of defiance. Nothing proper about it, you might say. It entirely a gateway to the holiness that they were called to as followers of the Christ child. After one of those church services in a township in Johannesburg, as Desmond Tutu left the church, he noticed a large group of people had gathered around a cowering figure on the floor. As he got closer, he saw that it was a police officer, a black police officer, begging for his life. To join the police force in those days was considered to be a betrayal, given the long history of brutality they had suffered at the hands of those who were charged to uphold the law. And in that instance, seeing that there was no time to reason with the crowd, Desmond Tutu knew what he trusted to do. He walked over, still in his Sunday vestments, and laid his body on top of the young police officer. And slowly, the crowd <clears throat> dissipated. On its own, it might look like the actions of a hero of the anti-apartheid struggle. It's set within the context of a life that had entrusted itself to the promise that the future 
is only possible through the power of God's forgiveness and grace. This was merely one of thousands of acts of faith. The belief witnessed in a life that was making its way home indeed by another road. The road promised by God's grace. The one that led away from enmity and retribution. The one that led to hope. And so there's the challenge for us as we begin a new year that we may take not for granted the vastness of the God whom we call our Lord in this time of our worship, but we may be invited to come also with the Magi to encounter the divine life in Jesus that has the power to upend our own assumptions about the world and our purpose within it. May we know something of that power of grace working in us. May we come home by another way, trusting that God is indeed transforming the world we are all called to love. Amen.